The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. Boris Johnson's nurse, who is from New Zealand, says he was just another patient, uh, but he's just another patient who is set to resume control of the British government on Monday. Uh, so just another patient to a New Zealand nurse, but prime minister again shortly. Uh, we don't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, I am here with two Kates. This is multiple Kate day. Uh, and Kate uh, Klonick, why don't you introduce Kate Darling? Oh my gosh, I am so thrilled that I get to do this. Um, hold on, I have to buckle up my overalls. Um, also, I'm having, I'm going, I went lowbrow for you, Kate. I went- Oh, wow. Miller High Life. Um, we just haven't been out to get more beer yet. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're in the same boat. Like this is a Chardonnay. I have probably not had Chardonnay since my mid twenties. Well, there you go. There's a, yeah. the quarantine brings out the best in us. These are hard times. Um, anyways, I am thrilled to have, uh, and have Kate on the show, Kate Darling on the show, Dr. Kate Darling, um, of the MIT Media Lab Research Specialist. Um, Kate is the author, you're going, what's the, the title of your new book? If it ever gets written, the title It's going to be... get written, especially now that you're trapped with small children. Those, I hear those are optimal writing conditions. My publisher has started sending threatening emails. I'm not kidding. Like, <laughs> it's very stressful. The book is called The New Breed, What Our History with Animals Reveals About Our Future with Robots. Perfect. I love that. And you are also the for perfect for pugilism week, the author of Is It Okay to Kick a Robot, which was in um, a an anthology. It was a there were a bunch of stuff in it, right? For the unlocking the universe out of the for in the Stephen Hawking anthology, right? Oh, that's the uh, that's actually a kid's book that I really? contributed to. Yeah, I wrote a little essay. So it's this like so his daughter so Stephen Hawking's daughter, um, well, when he was still alive, they wrote these books together. And then now she writes them alone. Um, they're books for like maybe seven to eight year olds, sort of that age range. And it's these fun like stories of exploring the universe, but then they intersperse it with essays by actual scientists explaining their field. And so I got to write like a one pager for like seven year olds on, is it okay to kick a robot? Is it? Well, <laughs> how long do we have? We have an hour, right? You explained it one page. Children, you can surely explain it to us. <laughs> I didn't say I did a good job. Um, yeah, yeah know, but no, tell us, what, tell what, what did you, what where did you come What is the seven-year-old version of the answer to that? I don't remember what I wrote, honestly. Um, but like the answer to any question, if you ask, you, you, Kate, you're a law professor, you know the answer to any question is, it depends. Yes, like, that's true. So ask under law what professor. circumstances is it not ethical to kick a robot? Yeah, so that's assuming pretty interesting. The assuming the robot is not, you know, at that moment performing life-sustaining 
surgery. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going to go with that. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's very different. I thought you were going to go somewhere That's definitely a case where it probably is not okay. Although, again, it would depend, right? Who are they performing? Like, is it someone I'm quarantined with? Like, then it might be justified to, like, (laughs) kick the robot. Annoying kids. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like lots of lots of cases. Yeah, trolley car scenario or a trolley car scenario where you have like hit the robot or hit two people. You would hit yeah. the two people, especially yeah, if you were so. quarantined with them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very complex issue. Um, so the actual no, I that we haven't gotten anything like an answer to the question. I know, I know. I want to give I, I will, wanted I to give a little promise. more background and Kate, like I want to give the high level version before we get into the kid level version of Kate's work though, which is kind of like sets up a little bit better like what she does, which is that she kind of she do you do psycho psychology like you do experiments. Um and even though you you have a your background is an IP, which I've always like wondered, maybe you can tell us how you got moved from like IP into like the world of robots, but you now explore and are very well known for exploring the emotional connection between people and lifelike machines. And I love, I just kind of, I like think that that's fascinating. There's a lot about, um, I think there's a lot about our intuitions around machines that, um, as is displayed with people really wanting to know the answer to this one question, is it okay to kick a robot? (laughs) Um, Like even in our Twitter feed before we did the show, like two people wrote in and were like, wait, is it? Like, why wouldn't it be? Like what? I've never thought about this. And that's that's exactly what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you like, you were like, is it okay to kick a robot? And someone, and people started immediately trying to answer the question, right? Someone was like, how is the answer not always yes? And it is a little bit counterintuitive. Like we're not talking about robots of the future, you know, the West world robots that may or may not have consciousness. I don't know, I'm not caught up on the third season, but we're talking about robots right now. Like why would it not be okay to kick a robot right now? And one of the answers could be that we subconsciously treat robots like living things and that it might actually have an impact on our own (laughs) psyche and behavior if we mistreat something that we subconsciously perceive as alive. Um, That's one theory. It is not proven by science, but it is something that I've dedicated a lot of time to exploring in my work, both exploring this tendency, you know, why would we treat robots like living things, even though we know perfectly well that they're just machines? And this question of, you know, why do we then also perceive empathy for these things? And why could it impact our behavior if we you know, treat robots in certain ways. So that's like the high level overview and we can get into whatever details you want. Yeah, so I have a couple robots downstairs that my son is using to 3D print masks right now. And I have to say that like, I, you know, have never, they've only been in the house a few days, but I've never like regarded them as remotely different from a lap, you know, any printer, right? They're 3D printers, they have robotic parts, but actually a printer has robotic parts. A normal printer has robotic parts too. And if you said, is it okay to kick a printer? The the question wouldn't have the same resonance. So my question to you to start is how much of this is really contingent on you're really talking about robots with faces, right? Like ones that are at some level mimicking 
life rather than robots that are just doing work. So, yes, this is most extreme with robots that are specifically designed to make us treat them like they're alive. So social robotics is all about creating robots. It, it can be a robot with a face or it can be a robot like R2-D2 that just mimics cues that people automatically subconsciously associate with states of mind and feelings. And so that's obviously an area where, yes, people will name the robots and treat them like they're alive and, you know, maybe feel bad if, you know, someone kicks them. But there's also this really interesting ingrained tendency we have to treat anything that moves around in our physical space with some sort of autonomy, like an agent. And so this, the 3D printer example, like I'm not even sure that that is technically a robot. And you know, we can get into the definition of what is and isn't a robot, but like just broadly, most robots that I'm talking about, they are moving around in our physical space in a way that seems autonomous to us, where we can't quite anticipate what they're going to do next and where it seems to us like they're making their own decisions, which kind of sort of like what a robot is supposed to be doing. And we're biologically hardwired to perceive that as agency and project onto it. And so one example is the Roomba vacuum cleaner, which, you know, 80, I, I, somewhere between 80 and 85% of people name their Roombas. And a lot of people feel bad for them when they get stuck and they will, you know, send them in for repair. I was, I love this story, but like they'll send them to the company for repair and the company will be like, here's a brand new replacement. And they'll be like, no, we want you to fix Meryl Sweep and send her back to us. So even like very simple robots can create this emotional attachment with people because of our inherent tendency to project onto movement, but also we just have this tendency to anthropomorphize anything. And we're also primed by science fiction and pop culture to really want to personify robots. So for a lot of reasons, robots are different than printers or laptops. Or Can I show makers. one of my favorite robots that you do a lot of demonstrations with? I pulled up a video that I'll just share, screen share really quickly of Pleo. Uh, this you on the convo, I think it's called. Do you remember that? Yes. Is that the PC mag one? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. That one was fun. Okay. So I'm going to, can I just do this real quick, Ben? Oh yeah. Um, okay. Um, the, so Kate has this, a very adorable, um, very adorable, um, robot that she has a special carrying case for that she takes with her to speaking engagements. Um, and his name, her name is Pleo. Um, and this is, a picture that says the validity, I guess, of a, of a robot personality. Um, I mean, I think the Turing test is interesting. I Someone love this. Passed the Turing test. They kind of cheated a, a little of bit. Well, well, is it cheating though? It was just brilliant design. But it was also like you're talking. Uh, okay, maybe just uh, we'll describe sure. exactly what happened. Now, my, my recollection of the story is about just a year like, looks ago like or so. A board so house someone designed. Cat. So the Turing test is basically you want to you want a, the part um, where I hold it up by the tail. Trick three people into thinking that they're talking to a human or human or machine. That is correct. Yeah, for certain. Right, right, right. So they converse. So someone set up a chat bot basically i found it sorry um so this is i don't know if this is even a spoiler mm -hmm. uh, i hope I, not. I, they killed a lot of robots yeah, yeah they yeah, kill yeah. a lot of yeah, them yeah. um you're gonna do something so, terrible uh, to but, Pleo? But, like midway through when it became mm -hmm. clear that this was going to be about consciousness i mm -hmm. stopped worrying about it and started yeah. enjoying it for the hbo show it is sure. and I, I think it's really well done yeah. like the finale was great did yeah. you see it oh yeah i loved it yeah what's yeah. he doing 
looking forward to waiting okay, for two years. Is he going to do back. it? Um, okay, so we end up kind of oh, each uh, segment by doing a, a bit of a lightning round, kind of bring it up a little bit. Um, so it just personally, Windows or Mac. Anyway, anyway, there is. I still think that this does a good job of like kind of like how you interact with and like how it moves. Like I instantly would have a problem with someone picking the smart ring. Okay, it's like instantly. Yeah, ring Yeah, and I think that there has been even a number of studies. I'm really sad. You've done a number of studies that kind of showed that like the more human-like, the more dog-like, the more animal-like, which actually gets into your book at the end of the day, right? Like this is like why you're writing a book about animals having done all of this work on robots. It, like is that there's like this massive amount of human emotion that we project onto living things. And like read, like my dog is sad. My dog is mad. My dog is like, you know, annoyed. Um, whatever it is, uh, these are all, uh, you know, these are all kind of things that people say there's no basis for believing that they have. And robots prove that because they can't have feelings, right? But that, what does it say about you as a per, and this is like the part of the, should I kick a rope, be allowed to kick a robot? What does it say about you as a person if you kick a robot like Pleo? Right? Like, what does it say? Yes, it's just a robot, but are like, aren't you also a monster? Yeah. Is it like, is it a red flag? Like being mean to the waiter? Does it mean that you're like a low empathy person? And we tried to get at that with some of the research that I did with some colleagues um, where we were looking at people's tendencies for empathy and their willingness to um, harm a robot, not a cute robot like the Plio, although I've done workshops with the, with those, but we were using something very simple, like a, um, it's called a hex bug. A lot of people have kids know this toy, it moves around like a little bug, and we just have people come in and smash them with mallets, and we were looking at, you know, would they hesitate more if we gave it a name? Would they hesitate more if they had a high capacity for empathy, like generally? And um, we did find some connection between, you know, people's tendencies for empathy and their willingness to hit a robot. So that could, that indicates that, you know, it might say something about you if you're willing to mistreat something that responds in a lifelike way, mistreat. Um, but we don't actually know, like some people might be more able to compartmentalize than others. We do know that robots don't feel pain. Um, it gets more interesting as the design gets more lifelike. Um, yeah, like Westworld, I think Westworld would be so much more interesting of a show if the robots didn't actually have any consciousness and there was no question of that. And then asking, what does it say about you if you like going to the park and shooting and raping robots? Is that a healthy outlet for your violent tendencies? And does that make you a great human in your day-to-day -day life? Or is that something that as a friend once said, you know, trains your cruelty muscles and makes you more likely to harm other people. And we just don't know the answer to that. It's the violence in video games question, but it's on a totally new level because now it's in this physical space and we're very physical creatures. It's also oh. pornography, right? It's like substitute yeah. goods ar argument, right? That like all of these things that pornography or like like paying for sex or paying sex workers that are consenting to some type of like sadomasochism or something like that was like a healthy way of like, fulfilling that fantasy without putting something through someone through something that they don't want at all right so like but i don't never know that there's ever been a good answer to that question no there hasn't been i mean MD, uh uh writes 
I got into the Zoom late and might have missed this already, but one, don't anthropomorphize robots. They hate that. And two, I, true story, often thank Siri. There you go. Many, many people do thank Siri to an anthropomorphize robots. They hate that. That's pretty funny. That made me yeah. laugh. I'd never heard that one before. So, so people, if you want to pose a question to the other Kate, um, uh, as anonymous attendee did, uh, leave it in the Q&A and we will rapture you into the conversation for, uh, uh, to do it live. Um, so here's my, I, I want to go back to my 3D printer. Why do you think that that does not qualify as a robot? It has computer controlled moving parts. It has sensors that are receiving information. What, what's, what's the argument that that is a not other than that it has no, it's impossible to anthropomorphize because it doesn't move, although its parts move. What's the argument that it doesn't count as a robot? It might actually be a robot. Um, there's, there's no good universal definition of robot. Um, there really isn't. Like if you Google the definitions, they're all over the place. I think that most people in robotics use the think, sense, act paradigm. And it could be that your 3D printer is doing that. You were kind of talking about how, you know, it can perceive things about the world. It can, um, I think the, for me, the big question is like, is it then making its own decision based on some input that it's gotten and then uh, acting on the world again, based on some internal decision-making process rather than, you know, if X do Y. Yeah, well, it's that's an interesting question, right? So it, it has to heat different uh, elements to different temperatures and maintain them at temperatures. And then it does sense if it's got a jam and alert uh, and freeze itself in place and wait until somebody fixes it. So it is make, doing a certain amount of autonomous decision making and it's doing a lot of very finely calibrated movements, um, but it isn't. It isn't making. I mean, the decisions are relatively crude, um, and they're incredibly contained in a very small manufacturing space. Yeah, I mean, and I would be fine with someone defining that as a robot. Like, I'd be fine with us defining that as a robot. Like, obviously, it's not the type of robot that I'm talking about that people are more inclined to develop an emotional relationship with simply because of like design matters a huge amount and, and movement. So if I take a sledgehammer and destroy one of these 3D printers, everybody's reaction is what a waste of money. Yes. Right? Nobody has an emotional connection with the printer. But the moment you put the printer on wheels, and then it's a Roomba. People it's will name googly it. eyes. Right. Well, it I was just gonna say that. I was like, what if Gabriel like started like putting stickers all over one of them and gave it a name? Gave it a name. Right. So, but 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 it seems to me the Roomba is not obviously. It doesn't have a face. It doesn't have a right. But what it does have that makes us anthropomorphize it is the ability to move autonomously. So it's not like it's. The 3D printer, it doesn't move. Its pieces internally move. And we think of that as just kind of a machine. 
but the Roomba is crawling around and it's got these little antenna things. And so it kind of says rodent to us, right? Or small animal. Yes. And, and I do want to also acknowledge that there's a spectrum. Like there are people who anthropomorphize their 3D printers and name them and like talk to them like a person. Like there's a whole spectrum. But yes, I agree that people are much more likely to anthropomorphize a Roomba than a 3D printer. And the key to, do you agree that the key to that is movement? Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I think that movement um, is a huge factor. I think that another factor is like, if you put a face on the printer or you give it a name, that also Which helps. Which part like, of all the face different. though, Kate? I remember seeing something that like big eyes are like the biggest thing. Like we we like have more empathy for things with giant eyes. Um, wait, and there's like, yeah. So I'm just kind of like, like what makes a face? Like, does it, I mean. I mean, this is like, animators have honed this technique for almost a hundred years now. Like how do you create something um, that people respond to emotionally and project onto like, what is a compelling face? Like I, I was recently watching the making of Bambi documentary where at first they were trying to make the deer look super, super realistic. And it wasn't until they took baby faces and baby expressions and big baby eyes and put that in the animals that people responded even better to them than if they looked like life like deer. So there's all these things that we seem to be hardwired to respond to. Like you said, the big eyes, noses don't seem as important um putting too much detail like eyebrows and ears and stuff on on a robot or a device seems to like not be helpful well let's talk about that because i do you think that that's related and maybe we can just i just you know this is basic for you but i think it's unknown to most people which is like the idea of the uncanny valley which is like uh, I think one of the most fascinating things in humanoid-like or like realistic-like robots. I don't know. You can probably explain it better than I can, but have you heard of this, Ben? No. Okay. Do you want to explain it or do you want me to? I mean, sure. It's So it's this um, theory or concept that a Japanese um, uh, uh, professor came up with, I think in the 70s, I think it was the 70s, um, uh, Professor Mori, and he says that the more um, lifelike you design something to look, the more people will relate to it until it gets too close to being, you know, human-like or lifelike, and then we get creeped out by it. So our um, appreciation for it falls into this uncanny valley. We start like disliking it, and that doesn't go back up until it is like one-to-one -one with the thing that we're comparing it to. Um, and this is, this is a theory that like a lot of people have tested empirically with very mixed results. Like it's not quite clear that this is really a thing it hasn't really been proven, but intuitively a lot of people, I think who, especially in like social robotics or people designing humanoid robots, I mean, it, there, there seems to be something there and the something may not necessarily be about like an uncanny valley so much as it is about expectation management. Because if something, it looks just like a human and um, you're interacting with it, you're expecting it to behave just like a human. And if like it twitches an eyebrow a little bit weird, then it just kind of breaks your expectations and you feel like you suddenly get insecure about the interaction and what to expect. Um, so that could be like a simple explanation for why the Uncanny Valley exists. 
it has a kind of intuitive appeal because like we people love like gorillas and chimps which are a lot like us but not so much like us that you could confuse them with us right because they're gorillas and they're covered with fur and they have the knuckle walk but they have like faces like us and they're really smart and but then if you get something that's much closer to you for example people from not your tribe yeah then we have racism right yeah and we have like all kinds of ways you don't say like historically people haven't said oh my god they're my they're they're like they're so close to me i love them right they're too close and then you're really competitive with them and we ascribe evil and malevolence to them in a way that we really don't with with um you know great apes um, i do so this you... with my mother sorry <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to get cl even closer still i you're now within my tribe okay it's okay to like you again right so i mean we do that in the biological world i think that that's, i didn't even thought about that comparison but i think that's pretty close yeah i think that's pretty dead on like we don't have racist attitudes toward chimps we, we have like species, chimps. species attitudes towards chimps. Like I was just going to say that. I was like, we think of them as chimps. It's like apes is kind of like calling things apes is a slur. If you call humans like apes, like that's an end. To so call a gorilla an ape, it's just factual. Okay, well, that's also true. Yes. <laughs> so we have a lot of respect for apes. I mean, we like, you know, they learn like we, we're fascinated when they learn sign language. And when they learn sign language, we don't say, but of course they can never, you know, do the things that require opposable thumbs because they're merely apes and we, you know, hate apes, right? Which is what well, we do with other people, right? We actually, yeah. when, when they perform at the level- but isn't, that, isn't that to Kate's point that this is about expectations? We have low expectations for apes and we have high expectations for other people. So I don't know. I've never thought about this before. I was just, when she was describing the Uncanny Valley, I was like, that rings true. Like, a, we, you know, we, we love chimps, but we hate, you know, again, not we, collect, but humans collect generally uh, don't like other humans of other backgrounds than themselves because that's a little too close. What and about yeah. yeah, go ahead, Kate. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, like, this is, like, we're, I think we're all outside of our area of expertise, but, like, I certainly like, am. <laughs> <laughs> we do that a lot here, Kate. <laughs> awesome. More wine. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, in-group, out-group bias, I've never connected that to, like, the Uncanny Valley, but, like, there might be something there, and there certainly seems to be some consensus that, you know, this is something that is, um, this isn't just, like, cultural the reason that we you know have racism and stuff but that there's you know something you know more like deeper biological instinct that like we're following that leads to like in-group out-group bias and that's not to say that we shouldn't do everything in our power to like uh prevent it in our social systems but i i think there's probably something there yeah i think that there's so you know, I've always thought of Uncanny Valley, maybe examples would like be helpful that like, as you're trending towards, it would like be like R2D2, like you really like, and then like, you know, like 
human, like a robot, like American girl doll you'd really like, because it looks like a doll, but it's very human and like, blah, blah. But like, then if it gets to be real life sized and tries to start acting like an actual human, you get a little freaked out. And this is kind of where some people fall off the cliff on terms of like sex dolls or deep fakes or all of this kind of stuff, because there starts to be these glitchy moments that really are upsetting. If you have like one second of thinking that this thing is a conscious being, and then all of a sudden you're snapped back to remembering as Kate kind of says, like that this thing is definitely not real. This is all just kind of this illusion. And that super creeps you out and you have this huge valley, right. Of like dislike. And then you could and theoretically kind of in the touring kind of like, but not touring because that's not quite the right metric, but like in the future of like the platonic ideal of like Westworld future looking robots that have their own whatever, you would be able to master, that you would come back from that valley and kind of master this. And that's kind of what Westworld is on the other side of the uncanny valley, I think of, um, right? Like yeah. they're so similar, like they're not creepy anymore. Um, People have like, some people have the theory though that it's not a valley it's a cliff and that you can never attain the one-to-one and that the robots in Westworld are creepy too yeah so it's not really yeah I I mean the point is like this doesn't we don't really have a good scientific basis for like what the uncanny valley actually is yeah so Joel Woodward despite your disparaging remarks about Gibbons uh, and I am deeply attached to Gibbons. They are by far my favorite ape. Um, so despite your being down on Gibbons, uh, the oh, you, I think you I think you, I think you uh, mischaracterized what I was saying is, is that, uh, you know, I mean, the chimps are just dandy. Don't ask again. Oh, do Gibbons and chimps not get along? No. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so if you ever see a Gibbon in a bar and he's got a couple of chimps, for God's sake, don't ask him about chimps. All right, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> I always, my, the thing that I used to live near, relatively near the National Zoo, and the coolest thing is that at sunrise every morning, the Gibbon families get together in pods and they hoot together. It's super loud, and they do it every morning. It's like the family bonding ritual, and Gibbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is so awesome. And, um, you know, I have nothing more to say about it, but if you guys have never heard Gibbon hooting early in the morning, it is yeah. super fabulous. It's kind of interesting. Coyotes, uh, that are pack animals, they will have a uh, ceremony where the leaders are heading out to hunt They'll all get together and there's all this yiping and yowling and screeching and it's, it's, uh, it's this uh, bonding procedure. And then they go and spend that hunting and when they come back, they have this procedure and it is an apology for them maintaining action and uh, family relations and so on. I wonder if the given ritual is based in the same, same ideas. I do not know enough about uh, 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 bi- uh, Gibbon biology or, uh, uh, or, or physical anthropology to know what role the uh, Gibbon hooting is playing. I just know it is freaking awesome. Yeah, it's so, cool and stuff like that happens. 
Joel, anyway, you had a can question. Can you ask your question about the the basic mechanics about three D printers? Well, yeah. One of the things that I, I have a three I'm a I'm a designer by trade and, and have them in my studio for prototypes of all sorts of stuff. And one of the things that having you know watched the industry and stuff for some time, one of the things that I find interesting is is that people are having them start to print things other than plastic. Uh, you can buy one that uh, prints chocolate, for instance. Uh, there have gigantic ones put together by the uh, company in Germany that extrudes uh, concrete and you can print a house with it. Uh, recently, they've been working that- I like the idea on... of printing chocolate. Yeah, right? That's kind of cool. I don't got one. <laughs> uh, and then recently there's work with being able to certain biological materials that would then, uh, with the addition of some stem cells, I think, now this is getting a little right at the edge of my understanding, um, can then start to be functioning tissues. And that, and that starts to really into a very interesting land. And then lastly, uh, James Burke, the technology historian, has been about what he believes to be the next moonshot, and that is that we will make nanites that can uh, manipulate matter at a level and can literally anything you want. You can have it turn a glass of water into uh, you know, uh, orange juice or, or a new part for your car. They, because they would have the capacity for manipulation level uh, we can make anything you want from anything. It really changes the uh, nature of, of our constructed universe. And I think those ideas start to create a deal of ambiguity about what stuff's made of and what's real and which is kind of, it, it started to kind of feel a little bit conversations. So uh, the, the piece about James Burke and the, and the, the nanites that reconstruct matter, I think is, is really, really interesting. You start to marry that up with quantum computing and whatnot, and we could, we could be walking into a very interesting next phase of human information and, and designed environment. Anyway. Pretty cool, uh, if we ever get out of our houses, that is. Kate, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I want my, what, what's it called? In Star Trek, they have the, like, the replicator that can make anything. Like, why, why don't we have those yet? We need those in quarantine. I want to well, make like, whatever I want. Can, can you actually, so like explain, like this is actually kind of interesting because I actually think that it, I remember we were talking about this like the last time we were together and we were talking about how your book and I was like, does it make, does your book make you want to be a vegan? And like, um, cause you're writing this book about like the emotional attachment to animals and like, you know, and you know, we just had this kind of this entire discussion about how we wouldn't want to kick a robot. Maybe we wouldn't want to eat like a cow type of thing. But like, if you kind of get to a place in which robots can create animals for you or create like this meatless meat or like do that type of thing, like the synthesis of meat, I think is fascinating. Um, and how they're doing that in labs. I don't know. It's, this is like so far outside of your realm of like area of expertise, but I'm just kind of curious how, what like working on, I am curious about how working on animals, um, you're studying animals in this, writing this book has changed how you um, approach the robot question. Yeah, I mean, I would say like 
to tie all of the questions together, like something that is that a lot of people like to talk to me about is, you know, what happens when the robots become like us and have consciousness and feelings and and what does that mean like morally? Um, and it seems to me that that is like a very far future question compared to things like, you know, now we can like, um, you know, we have we have all these like new fields where we're we're starting to like push at the edges of biology and what's possible and what we can recreate. And I think that the question of what it means to be human is going to come up much much sooner. And by the time we get to a place where we have super conscious robots, we'll be living in a different world and have like kind of figured out a lot of those issues. Um, so so it's kind of like not an interesting question to me, but a more interesting question is you know. If it's clear to us that once a robot can feel pain, it's wrong to kick it, then why do we like cut off chicken beaks and keep them cooped up in cages when we know that that's painful? Like it's it just seems that when it comes to animals and our relationship with other species, or like we were saying, our relationship with other humans, like we're such hypocrites. Um, we don't really live our beliefs. We actually protect animals based on the way that they look, uh, rather than based on any inherent biological criteria, the or ones are with like the big customs eyes. of dealing with them. Yeah, or customs of dealing with them. Like there are huge cultural differences. I mean, you know, some people eat dogs, and you know that horrifies us. There's, you know, I grew up in Switzerland where they eat horses, and in America that's like a complete taboo. So there's all the there's the cultural element. There's like what do we respond to in terms of like the design of the animal, which then brings it back to robots. Like does the de design of the robot is, is, does our relationship with animals and our hypocrisy predict how we're going to treat robots in the future when we have, you know, so many animals that we treat like products and some of them we treat like companions. And we're already seeing people develop emotional connections to certain robots. Are we going to see the same thing where like some robots are treated like the 3D printer and some robots are treated like, you know, a, a companion. And I think that there's a lot to learn from this relationship and the history of animal rights um, that applies to right now our relationship with robots and our relationship with robots in the future. So some of what you're saying, and I agree, there is a huge cultural component to it. Um, but some of what you're saying sound it's pretty hardwired. I mean, I don't know of any cultures where, uh, you know, spiders and snakes are not, uh, there is not a anxiety about them, right? There just seems to be something about certain types of insects, particularly ones that bite us, that we do have a, a kind of programmed response to. So have you found that there are, I mean, like insects that bite us have faces too, um, and snakes do, including poisonous snakes. Um, do you find that there's like qualities that you can make a robot with that make them repellent as, as opposed to uh, make them such that people identify them? Like, do you know how to make a robot that people would want to squash like a, a, a cockroach? Uh, so 
I think that like, yes, you can certainly, like if you can make robots appealing, you can make them unappealing. And you can do that either by trying to, you know, tap into that like base instinct to like, not like the creepy crawly things, or you can like use, you know, make it look like Terminator, which, you know, everyone who's seen Terminator will dislike that robot. Um, there are a lot of design tricks you can use I mean, we can't override that base instinct. You know, one of my friends is like a huge, she loves snakes. So yeah, I like snakes too. It's it's not like we can't like override those base instincts that we have. Um, and there is like a whole spectrum. But yeah, I think the really interesting question in robotic design isn't, can we make robots not attractive? It's, is is there a way in a context where we don't want people to anthropomorphize the robot and become attached to it. So one example being, you know, soldiers becoming emotionally attached to the robots that they work with, which there, you know, some research was done a few years ago on soldiers becoming attached to the bomb disposal units that they work with and really treating them like pets. And, um, and Peter Singer has written a book called Wired for War where he goes through um, some anecdotes of people actually risking their lives to save the robots that they work with. and. Julie Carpenter has done extensive studies on this. So like, there's, it's a real thing that sometimes we have robots that we want to use as tools, but having an emotional attachment might actually be, you know, anything from inefficient to dangerous. How do we design that in a way <laughs> to discourage emotional attachment, but still make it a useful tool? And that, that seems like a huge challenge to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, I love that example of the, um, of the, sacrificing for um for the for the the soldier sacrificing for the bomb detonator robot because that just seems so similar to how handlers get attached to their canines right that are police or like something like that but what i think is so what is i think is particularly crazy um in the scenario that you give is that we're putting soldiers in a particular emotionally heightened situation um, in which they are isolated from all of their loved ones and putting them with these, like, of course they're going to maybe get emotionally attached to the robots or form some type of like emotional attachment. Um, that actually ends up making a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and there's also, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading for this book I'm writing. And if you look at the history of animals used in war, and the relationships that people developed with their horses or you know dogs or other animals it's not all like negative like obviously it's very traumatic then when like the animal you know passes away but at the same time this emotional bond also helps the soldiers you know through some very difficult experiences so to the extent that robots could actually play an emotionally supportive role, there's also that to consider. I think the main problem right now is that we're not considering any of that when we deploy this stuff. Like we're just like, here's a robot that will help save lives. And we're not thinking about the ways that people will treat it differently than another device. All right, so we have some key questions that we're asking all yeah, of our yeah. guests on Pugilism Week. Um, uh oh, I have not watched yet. <laughs> Uh, no, that's okay. Mayonnaise. Yes, yes or no? Or no. Uh, yes. Oh, see? I love you. Kate, would you eat a stale mayonnaise sandwich from two stale pieces of white bread with just mayonnaise in between? Yes. Thank you. Oh my God. It's like, I, it's like I guess, Ben is disgusted right now. now, now we've, found, we've, we've found the rule, which is only people named Kate. <laughs> 
<laughs> share this particular application. All right, next question. Is a taco a sandwich? No. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. Hamburger? Wait, you're going to trap me. No. <laughs> wrap. What, a wrap? A wrap. Is a wrap a sandwich? No. What about a burrito? No. Wait, you so really? What about a hamburger? You're like pretty hard line. Do we have a hamburger? How, yeah, what's your definition? No wonder no, you no. can't define a goddamn robot, Kate. Look, like, this the is only, like the this. only sandwich that exists is like stale <laughs> white bread with mayonnaise in it. That's the only sandwich for me. I've, I've maybe, I've like, I've maybe tainted the pool here. <laughs> I got a lot of hate um, from, oh, we have a special guest. Um, ben, can you bring up Ryan Kalo? Who no. just came in to join us. <laughs> oh, of course uh, I can bring up Ryan Kalo. Yeah. Um, Ryan Kalo. I'm going to, once he gets here. Hello. Oh, that's, that's Ryan Name Kalo. Yes or no. That's a younger hey. Ryan Kalo. Let's that's a younger Ryan Kalo. You're a baby in that picture, Ryan Kalo. I know. I don't even remember what that is from. Um, Aw. Oh, my Where goodness. Somebody it's before, it was wedding. before so colored film. Window is when it was from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It must have been post or during law school because I didn't have a beard before law school, but sometime decades ago. Um, so let me the mayonnaise question. Okay, well, let me introduce him. So Ryan is a law professor at the University of Washington and he has wrote the world's first textbook on ro robot law. Um, and is the founder of We Robot, which is a um, law and uh, law and technology uh, annual conference. He talks about this stuff with Kate all the time, um, and is we're Brian. We're having it's pugilism week here on In Lieu of Show. We just got done talking about robots. We'll probably talk about them again. But right now, the the really hard hitting question we have for you is mayonnaise, yes or no. Oh, I'm pro mayonnaise. Oh, good. Woo! Wait, is there an anti? Is there an anti mayonnaise? Continue? There was. Uh, Orrin Kerr fiercely anti mayonnaise. No, I disagree with a lot of things, and I guess it includes mayonnaise. <laughs> um, Orrin, if you're listening and you want to duke it out with Kate Plural and Ryan Kalo over the merits of mayonnaise, jump on in. Orrin um, had hated mayonnaise. I'd rather. I'd rather Sorry, Go I was going to say, I'd rather, I'd rather debate Orrin about mayonnaise than, um, you know, the, the criminal procedure technology. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. <laughs> if those ne are the options. Next question. Is a taco a sandwich? No. Hot dog in a bun? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think of those things as, uh, as kinds of sandwiches. What about a burger? Piece of meat hmm. between two pieces of bread, right? Well, I'll tell you why I'm hesitating about burger is because it is often classified in restaurants as a sandwich. You're gonna like let other people make your life decisions for you, Ryan? Uh, they're experts. They're, they sell food for a living. They're subject matter experts, and they have taxon they have taxonomized this as a sandwich. And so, so I'm just trying to be. Yeah. So you're, you're going to respect their expertise on that. What That's why I'm hesitating. That's why I'm hesitating. Burrito? 
burrito, no. Okay. So people seem to have like the bread has to be definitively separated. And it, but Kate didn't think that a burger was a sandwich. I'm just not with any of you on this. They're all sandwiches. Really? Like, they're totally all sandwiches. When you're like, I'm like, what is the platonic idea of a sandwich? So you're like the same type of person who would think like a tree stump is a chair. Like, that's not, like, it's just. Or like, a 3D <laughs> printer is a robot. A 3D, we have Ryan Kahlo here. You're a robot law expert. Is a 3D printer a robot? He's going to so, say it depends. Yeah, well, let me just <laughs> let me just say let me just say that that very very briefly is that I have gotten like uh, like Kate, I've gotten upset and others have gotten obsessed with this question of what a robot precisely is, um, and I actually uh, had a, a terrific PhD candidate. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to name her uh, uh, right now, but she just got the best ever postdoc at Cornell Tech working with Solon and, and Karen. And I'm just, oh, that's and Helen, awesome. I'm just so, I'm just so excited. Helen, I mean, just perfect, perfect, pl perfect place for her. Um, she did a bunch of research on this uh, with me and we found that the, the definition of a robot varies according to discipline. And it depends on what the discipline is interested in. And so, um, so for example, um, in mechanical and electrical engineering, it's a programmable machine and it's used to differentiate a robot from something that only does one thing. And so because um, a 3D printer has an arbitrary, you know, set of, of, of um, things it can make, maybe under that definition, it would be considered a robot. Whereas in the humanities, where the interest is in the sort of liminal status of robots and the thing that Kate and I, and especially Kate talks about um, this, the way in which robots sort of are almost human. Uh, and that's what fascinates us. Well, they, they will lump, um, the robot is an artificial person. And so they will lump robots in with Gollum, the Gollum of Prague, and they will lump it in with uh, zombies and, and, and Frankenstein, all because those and things burritos. are liminal, right? and burritos and they, they, they will lump burritos in with sandwiches it's it's a free-for-all in the humanities um and then uh and then the but then i use the definition in my work um uh that computer science gravitates towards which is that a robot um has to sense think and act this is this is sort of mapped on by computer science and robotics from the uh sense think act paradigm of, of, of early psych psychological research into uh, anyway, it's, it's a psychological paradigm and mapped onto robotics. And under that, I, I don't really, I don't really see the 3D printer as counting because, I mean, it certainly doesn't count on the humanities definition. It's not trying to emulate a person. Um, but does this 3D printer really sense the environment around it, process what it senses, and then act upon that environment? No. And so my definition uh, is going to say no, uh, but it does depend. It depends on what you're interested in. No. You, you get you get highly educated people on here and all of a sudden you can't get consensus that a burrito <laughs> is a sandwich or even that a hamburger is a sandwich and that a 3d printer is a robot um uh, well i just think that nothing matters i mean i will also point out that a 3d printer has another really important characteristic of a fully self-aware robot. 
um, which is that a 3D printer can print another 3D printer. And so <laughs> it can self-replicate like a, like, like they, if, you know, if you have enough of them in a room, they can mate. But like, but like cells can do that. We don't call them robots. Also, they can only make the other 3D printers out of chocolate. <laughs> Which, by the way, sounds pretty <laughs> awesome to me. Yeah. Ryan, did you know that there are 3D printers that make things that are just made out of chocolate? Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. He seems to have uh, vanished. I think he does. So, yeah. I'm, so um, we need to wrap up pretty soon. But uh, if there are, oh, there seem to be some additional questions. Uh, wow, a lot there of mostly a lot a... of comments about sandwiches. So yeah, and people have strong feelings about mayonnaise. Um, this is why I picked it as a good question for pugilism week because I know that this is like the thing. I'm I'm with you. All right, what else do we need to talk about before we wrap up? Um, Kate Darling, um, if you had to fight a robot for your life. If Pleo suddenly like attacked you, would you just like rip Pleo's head off, or like, like if it became a Chucky doll and like animated suddenly, like out of a horror movie, do you think you could do it? Let me turn that around. Like, if one of your pets did that, what would you do? Probably, probably be able to kill it if I had to fight for my life. But oh my I gosh, feel, like, why am I asking you? But <laughs> I feel bad for it. I'd feel, yeah, right. Why are you asking the person who like literally collects like broken things from nature all like as a, like a semi-professional career? <laughs> um, no, I, uh, I don't know. I know probably, I don't, maybe, I don't know. I mean, look, like if it like, it's okay to kick a person if it's self-defense and it's right. necessary in the moment, right? So that's why, you know, no, but, there's but, no- but, but, here's, but here's my question for you about Pleo. Um, if I gave you a, a mallet and I said, destroy it right now, how guilty would you feel? I guess it's like a scale thing. People have tried to do this to me because- Because you do it to other the, people. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I got into this was by trying to get people to smash Pleos with a mallet. Um, so what's your I, personal level of guilt associated with your Roomba or with mistreating Yeah, you didn't Pleo. bug out with Pleo. You said that you left Pleo in, in Boston. Well, I did that in part because there are two toddlers in this house and my five Pleos are very old and like delicate. So I was actually trying to protect them by leaving them at home. Interesting. Right, but you are neglecting them. I'm, well, I, I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that, you like, that that about a dog. Let's not leave this on a that sad note with Kate <laughs> feeling bad about her Pleo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm an objective scientist. So I cannot like, you know, admit emotional attachment to my Pleos. But uh, given that our research has shown that low empathy people are more likely to take a mallet to a Pleo or like a different robot, I would never take a mallet to a Pleo out of fear for what that would say about me. Is that oh, enough of God. a cop out? No, I think that's actually the perfect answer. Actually, well, I, I would cheerfully smash a Pleo. <laughs> 
But, but oh my I, god, I would never smash a Pleo. What the uh, hell is wrong okay. with you? I, let me let me explain. I don't even val- want to hear this. I value life. I know the difference between life and inanimate objects. Why can't and, you value both? What's that? Why both. can't you value Why both? It's either because or it, it diminishes li- uh, the live animal. Well, I'm just going to you know, come to your house and burn it down then, Ben, because he is not actually a um, But like a, a simulacrum of a cute dinosaur is not a cute dinosaur. And to, appreci- to fully appreciate the difference between the two, you should be willing to smash the, the fake. I think that that's like intellectually appealing but it's not how humanity operates but i would insist on operating that way and you you don't even operate that way and people would come people would come and like burn your house down like kate because that's not the morals that this society like you live in a society like unfortunately so you're not going to get very far with that attitude I... Well, Ben's gonna go join the Gibbons, and that's gonna end this entire. <laughs> I I like animals, and I try not to confuse them with robots. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. This Kate. has been super fun, Kate darling. Kate this darling is the fun. best. Thank you for having me on the show. It was really fun. This was great. Thank you for coming on, and like it was a really fun kind of. Uh, it was a really fun kind of break about actually hitting things uh, from the from the politics that we've been discussing in Pugilism Week. Uh, it was, yeah, it was perfect. And thank you, obviously, for your good sense about mayonnaise sandwiches. You know, <laughs> we're going to have to have words about that separately. <laughs> Ben's like, stop talking about that. Just like, oh. Ben, you All live right. in a society. I do, which is why I don't. And I'm in it, Ben. I don't physically attack people <laughs> who, who eat mayonnaise between stale pieces of white bread. I don't do it anymore. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, whatever. This is just gonna sound. This, I'm just gonna dig a bigger hole if I keep going. So we're gonna wrap it. But anyway, you clearly you. have a constituency for it. Yes, thank God. <laughs> uh, and they're all named Kate. Kate, thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right. Uh, We are going to leave it there. Um, uh, Kate, what is our sign off today? Oh, God, I had such a good one. Um, And now I forgot it. I wrote it it down and it's in the other room. Um, But I think it was something along the lines of, oh, I know I did. I tweeted it. It was... um, tweeted our sign off well it didn't tweet it as a sign off but i thought of it that it would turn into a nice sign off which was that i'm very much looking forward to looking back on this period of time in our history and um, and when we do look back on it we will be able to say we have done 30 episodes is this our of 30th in lieu episode? Of fun, i think this is our 30th episode we have over 500 youtube subscribers and over 500 uh twitter followers in like a matter of like three weeks basically i'm pretty and impressed been, and we've been stood up by noah feldman so but you know, guess who's coming on the show tomorrow ben yeah. 
Well, we're, he and I are going to have words about that. Oh, God, please. Uh, if there's where, anyone who can take it, it's probably Noah Feldman. Where do you think so. he is on the mayonnaise question? Oh, God. Um, well, he's very, you know, he's Jewish. So probably anti-mayonnaise. He's, he's probably be a on your guy. side. Yeah, he's going to be a mustard guy. I, well, oh, I want to tell a story. I have to tell a story. I went to a, I went to a restaurant today, which was like the epitome of the type of restaurant that we would hate on lieu of show. We would like bring guests there as a test for the thing there. It's called the box lunch and it is all sandwiches. It's called the sandwich shop and it's all wraps. And they're all wait for it. None of them have mayonnaise or sorry. None of them have mustard. They all just have mayonnaise on them. Every I just want to point sandwich. out that this resolves the is a wrap a sandwich question. It is sold at a sandwich shop. Well, anyone can call that. I could call myself a beer purveyor and then just sell scotch. Like it doesn't really matter. It's just confusing. It's just like, it's no. <laughs> all right. I'm saying is like, then I had a moment where I turned to John and was like, is this the definition of goyish? And John was like, <laughs> I'm standing in Cape Cod with like surrounded by a mayonnaise and like wraps. And he was like, where did you learn that word? And I was like, Ben taught it to me. <laughs> maybe, so. maybe we'll have to play uh, uh, Lenny Bruce's uh, list of things that are Jewish and goyish. The problem with which is that it's so outdated that they don't correspond to things that we put on that axis anymore. It's still pretty amusing. I want right. to watch, maybe I'll watch it and then we can come up with a new one on our Saturday show. All right. It is uh, that time. Uh, we will uh, see you all tomorrow at five o'clock with Noah Feldman, the only person who has ever stood up in lieu of fun. And until then, remember, Look if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can come hang out with us. See you later, Ben. Ciao.